It's February 28, 1993, a quiet Sunday morning in central Texas. The fields are brown and bare around a cluster of buildings that house the members of the Branch Davidian religious group. Then federal agents arrive and all hell breaks loose. How many gunshots did you hear? It was quite a few, you know, I couldn't really say how many it was. The FBI had come to search the compound for weapons. Later, both sides will claim the other fired the first shot. Good evening, friends. It has been over 36 hours now since federal agents first confronted a heavily armed religious cult near Waco. They were met by a hail of gunfire, killing four of the agents and wounding over a dozen others. Tonight, additional agents have arrived on that scene, many of them in combat gear. FBI agent Gary Nessner is one of the new arrivals. But he's not in combat gear. He's come with a different toolkit, as he explains in a speech in 2010. Active listening skills. They're communication skills based on trying to develop a relationship with somebody. Nessner is one of the FBI's lead hostage negotiators. More than 100 people are inside the compound, including dozens of children. But Nessner says they don't see themselves as hostages because they're devoted to their leader, David Koresh. So how do you then influence somebody that's not holding hostages? His followers believe in everything he says. They are totally loyal to him. Nestor and his team talk with Koresh hour after hour, day after day. Koresh claims that God has given him the power to bring on the apocalypse, and he clearly wants to get the word out to a wider audience. Nestor doesn't cut him off or try to convince him he's wrong. Instead, the two work out a deal. If Koresh will let his people go, the FBI will make sure a Dallas radio station plays a message Koresh has recorded. The tactic works. I'm very proud of the fact that a very phenomenal negotiation team, we were able to secure the release of 35 people, including 21 children. But that still leaves more than 70 people. And after the 24th day, only one more person leaves. The standoff drags on for another week, and another, and another. Finally, to try to encourage the Davidians to come out, the FBI inserted tear gas, and David Koresh started the fires. And what's sad is that he took all those women and children and innocent lives with him. 75 Branch Davidians, many of them children, die in the burning compound. The next day, President Clinton goes on national TV. Yesterday's action ended in a horrible human tragedy. Mr. Koresh's response to the demands for his surrender by federal agents was to destroy himself and murder the children who were his captives, as well as all the other people who were there who did not survive. Clinton orders the Justice and Treasury Departments to study what could have been done differently at Waco and how federal agents should proceed in future standoffs. Is it better to try and force someone to obey your orders or to really listen to what they have to tell you? Journalist Kate Murphy has a new book on listening and lots of ideas about what really works. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. 
Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world, and maybe even the way you hear it. This week, how and why to listen better. Over the course of her career, journalist Kate Murphy has interviewed some of the most fascinating people in the world, like former FBI lead hostage negotiator Gary Nestner, whose story we just heard. She writes often for The New York Times and other publications. Now she's the author of a new book, You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters. We might be living in a golden age of terrible listening. There's always some distraction, some temptation, making it harder for us to pay attention to what people are telling us. It starts with our phones, but society sends us all sorts of signals at work, on TV, in politics, that talking, scoring points, being heard are all more important than listening. For a journalist like Kate Murphy, good listening is a crucial professional skill. For the rest of us, better listening can be a way to strengthen our ties to the people closest to us and to create new connections in our lives. Before we jump into our show today, I wanted to let you know that Kate and I spoke not long before the coronavirus pandemic swept in and did its thing to our lives and our relationships and pretty much everything else. But I think our conversation about listening, really listening, may be more important than ever. Kate Murphy, it is so great to have you on the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I want to first of all extend to you my wife's gratitude. She was thrilled to see me reading a book with this title, Nose Deep, for the past (laughs) few weeks. And she's very excited about my applying all that I've learned in the coming weeks and months. I I think you're going to have a lot of spouse purchases. I don't know if you found that to be true. I have found that to be true. (laughs) I've been inscribing in the books, you know, to the husband and to the wife and to the kids and to the parents. I'm not at all surprised. Um, In your research for this book, Kate, you've interviewed dozens of people for whom listening is critical. Bartenders, radio producers, focus group moderators, top furniture salesmen, of course, hairstylists for whom listening is very critical, and the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI for 10 years, Gary Nestor. And I was struck in the book, he referred to himself in a conversation with you, I believe, as the FBI's lead listener. Right. Well, he actually said that most people think of being a hostage negotiator as making this really good argument. Hmm. And that's how the person puts down the gun, comes out, because he's really reasoned with them and made them come out. But he said it was really just listening to them and asking them, so tell me how you got here. So what's happening? You know, what are you feeling? And the people that that generally after they came out, they asked them, so, you know, what made you Hmm. come out? And, you know, what did he say to you to convince you to come out? And most of them said, well, I don't really know what he said, but I like the way he said it. And in reality, he said very little. But when he did say something, it was really he was spot on at what they were feeling. He would tell me he would say things like, well, it sounds like she really hurt you. Or, you know, just sort of reflecting back. And he said, you know, it's the kind of things that, you know, we don't do often enough in our everyday life but we should. You know, you, you almost get the sense reading that section of the book that you think of these people in these desperate, horrible positions of having a gun in their hand and having gone to these, you know, extreme lengths. 
and that they really needed to speak with Gary or someone else that was capable of truly empathetic listening months before. There's another section where you talk about how there's a striking commonality among mass murderers that they very typically feel profoundly isolated. And if you're not listened to, then you get kind of cut off from the rational world. Right, and you get hurt and you get angry and you get resentful. And so you start only listening to yourself. And that's where you know a lot of this crazy ideology comes from, where that's the only person that you're taking in that information. But yes, it's exactly that. You know, you think about when they interview family members or friends of the mass murderer, what do they always say? They say, you know, he kept to himself. Or, you know, I haven't heard from him a long time. You know, I had, didn't mm-hmm. ask him anything about that. And, you know, it just, it's, it's sort of a vicious cycle where somebody feels not listened to and then as a result stops listening to anyone else and becomes isolated and starts thinking these crazy thoughts. And of course, we're starting here with the most extreme, extreme yes, cases. Of course, it sounds very, very, very dire. But loneliness is a kind of epidemic right now, isn't it? And I think we've realized in recent years that it's a health crisis, right? Well, yeah, health officials are calling an epidemic. I mean, in the UK, they've actually created a position in government of a minister of loneliness to deal with the millions of people who feel isolated and alone. And, you know, we just had a survey, it was in 2018, of you know, tens of thousands of Americans, and more than half said they do not have an in-depth, in-person conversation with another person on a daily basis. Wow, yeah. You know, where yeah. people aren't interacting, not having the opportunity to really listen, or if they are in the company of other people, they often feel isolated and lonely. And, you know, that doesn't happen if people are really listening. That's what makes you connect. You know, and so a lot of these people feel lonely even when lots of other people are around. I think this probably resonates for most everyone. On the back of your book, at work, we're taught to lead the conversation. On social media, we shape our personal narratives. At parties, we talk over one another. So do our politicians. We're not listening and no one is listening to us. And I think there's like a haunting resonance to this sense that no one's listening, which I think you found in your travels you keep hearing this. Well, it was interesting because I asked everyone that I encountered when writing this book, and so, I mean, it was hundreds of people on five continents. I asked them, what does it mean to be a good listener? Hmm. And I usually got a blank stare, you know, deer in the headlights. But at the same time, they could precisely tell me, rattle off with ease, what it means to be a bad listener. Things like looking at a phone, interrupting, changing the subject back to themselves, responding in an illogical or insensitive way. And so, you know, that really tells you that people have a lot more experience with the latter, with not Mm. being listened to versus really being listened to. So, you know, people not only felt that they weren't being listened to, but they couldn't even describe what it meant to be a good listener. So many people have come up to me and say, you know, I thought I was a good listener. But then when I read your book, I realized I'm really not. Because, and it's not that people are bad or boorish, it's just we've been conditioned not to listen. It feels like listening has never been more of a struggle for people, right? Right. And we know that there's some factors that are new, like we've had these smartphones emerge that have become ever more compelling, Right. right? And then maybe there's an element of politics causing people to be more likely to stereotype one another. What, what, What do you think are the variables that might make this a moment in history when we're just particularly bad at listening to each other. 
Well, I mean, I think you're right. Of course, there's technology, but mm -hmm. it's not just technology. When's the last time you went to a restaurant and could really hear the other person? Yeah. You know, they're so loud. You can't have any type of listening going on. And it's very much you have to shout and it's exhausting. You're never going to have a meaningful conversation. Also, you look at offices today. They're open design. So, you know, there's this cacophony, you know, every mm -hmm. keyboard click after lunch belch, you know, every ring of a telephone, you know, it just is this racket. And then, you know, on top of that, it's, you know, again, this idea, this ethos of you have to sell yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to lead the conversation rather than follow it. Then put on layer on top of that politics where, you know, people can't listen to anybody who doesn't agree with them. And social media makes it so you don't even have to. You're mm -hmm. just absolutely siloed in these different arenas. And listening is a skill. And like any skill, it degrades if you don't do it often enough. So if you have all of these circumstances preventing you from listening, you get bad at it. You're not doing it as often enough. And then when you're not good at it, subconsciously, you avoid circumstances where you have to. There's this great observation of yours that assumptions are earplugs. I love that phrase. What does that mean? Well, it just means that we all have a tendency to really put people in various file folders in our head. So if we see something that you know, mirrors something that maybe we saw in the past, and we just sort of you know, drop people into various folders without listening to them. Like, you know, I give the example of, say, you see somebody with an NRA bumper sticker. Mm -hmm. Or you see somebody wearing a t-shirt that says, you know, vegans make better lovers. You make a lot of assumptions because of those two things. And to be fair, those people could be very invested in those, those ideologies that it does tell you quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what you know is a persona and not a person. And there's so much more to them than their ideology. And so if you cut yourself off right there, then you're not going to know the full story. But, you know, the same can be true with if you see somebody that's older, see someone who's a millennial, you know, you make certain assumptions about them, you know, someone who's black, someone who's transgender, you're, you know, all of these labels that yeah. we have today. And it yeah. really is, it's like an earplug. Mm -hmm. Once in a while, there's a guy who gets out of a pickup truck with an NRA bumper sticker who's wearing a Vegans Make But Better Lovers <laughs> t-shirt. I'm sure it's happened, maybe. Yeah. It probably has. <laughs> you know, you, right. And what I think is, is kind of tragic is that living as we do in these filter bubbles, where we think, okay, well, people either agree with me, in which case I want to hear them, but I know what they're going to say, mm -hmm. or they disagree with me, in which case I don't want to hear from them at all. Right. Right. That we're basically not listening to anyone. <laughs> right. No. You know, I heard a really interesting interview recently between Tom Daschle and Trent Lott, the former uh, majority and minority leader of the Senate. And this was during the Clinton impeachment. And they were asking them, you know, why they really had a much easier time laying down the rules of the impeachment hearing. Whereas, you know, we know what happened with this latest impeachment hearing where nobody could yeah. agree on anything. And they said that they really thought the difference was, was because essentially they listened to each other. Mm -hmm. They had a direct line between the two of them. They talked all the time. And Dashiell brought up this really interesting point was that there used to be a dining room in the Senate, that only Senate, not aides, only senators could go in, and it was communal dining. Hmm. So they all sat together, and they had to, you know, talk and listen to each other. They weren't just seeing them as an interview or on Twitter. 
And that was the only, again, persona. They knew them from a political ideologue mm -hmm. instead of a person. And once you sit down with someone and you know, you know that they've struggled with an illness, they mm -hmm. have an elderly parent they're caring for, they love their kids, they collect yo-yos, you know, are they, you know, hum Bohemian Rhapsody when they're nervous? Once you know more about the person, it's really hard to hold on to your hostilities after that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to think yep. of them as only as their ideology. And so, you know, listening, you know, whether or not you come to agree with them, but sure. it's the basis for compromise or at least peaceful coexistence. So, you know, listening is so valuable, you know, whether you come to their side or not, you can yep. still disagree. And you probably will, but that's how you meet in the middle. So listening is a great tool for resolving conflicts, and it's an essential skill for everyday life. It can even help ease loneliness. Why are so many of us so bad at it? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. We could all use help becoming better listeners. I know I could. That's why we're offering a free copy of You're Not Listening by today's guest, Kate Murphy, when you join the Next Big Idea Club, the community of readers and writers that powers this podcast. As a member of the club, you'll also get a regular supply of the most thought-provoking new nonfiction. And if you don't have time to read as much as you'd like, we'll send you videos, audio, and quick book highlights direct from the authors so you can absorb the key insights in just minutes. Become a better listener, a better friend, a better leader. Go to nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast and use the promo code LISTEN. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast, promo code LISTEN, L-I-S-T-E-N. So let's talk about why we're not listening. And as you say, it's not that we don't aspire to be good listeners, right? I think, right. I think most of us do. You start by saying that part of it, right, is that we have this excess processing power. Right, that actually, like, if you're trying to do nothing but listen to my words, you've got extra brain cycles that need to do something. Right. And this causes us to wander or go elsewhere. Is that part of it? It's a huge part of it, because there's something called the speech thought differential. Right. Which is that you can think a lot faster than I can talk. And as a result, you have all this excess brain capacity, and so you start thinking, Ooh, do I have spinach in my teeth? Or, you know, what do I need to pick up at the grocery store later? Do I have enough money in the parking meter? You know, all these things are going through your mind. And so you think about those things, and then you come back to the conversation, and you're behind. And so you start filling in the gaps, and that's what happens. Yep. So, you know, to be a really good listener is, in part, practice to know how to focus. I, I give the example of meditation. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to meditation, where you acknowledge those distractions, but then you bring it back to focus. And your focus, instead of breathing or a mantra, is the other person. So, you know, that's a way to go about it. But also, you know, there's so much more going on than just the words that are, you know, maybe 120 to 150 per minute that somebody can say. 
And so if you use that excess brain capacity to pick up on gestures, just and also thinking about why did that person say that? And, you know, how's that person feeling right now while yep. they're saying that? Is this important to them? Is this not important? Am I boring them? Just all of this information, yep. then that's what makes you a good listener is mm -hmm. you're taking in all that information. Mm -hmm. I'm among the people who read the book and thought I'm not as good of a listener as I thought I was. <laughs> I had that experience. And there were a number of moments where I had sort of an uncomfortable recognition that, mm -hmm. boy, that sounded a little bit like me. Mm -hmm. and, and one of those moments was you talk, you talk about the way that we ask the wrong questions. I mean, people say, you know, oh, you shouldn't ask people what they do for a living. But I find it fascinating what people do for a living. And it's not uncommon to ask, you know, where do you live? Because it's an opportunity to connect. But there's this incredible observation you make that those are questions of appraisal that often were unwittingly kind of assessing somebody's value mm -hmm. in society or value to us by asking questions like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, those are the standard cocktail party conversations. What do you do for a living? Where do you live? Where'd you go to school? Are you married? Do you have kids? And, you know, people may say, oh, well, I'm fascinated by that. Well, you're fascinated to rank them in the social hierarchy. You're really not trying to get to know the other person. And as a result, people get reflexively defensive. Yeah, and so yeah. you're liable to get that script. It's pretty much a resume recitation or an elevator pitch, something self-promotional. Yeah. And so, you know, and those are the types of conversations that just make you want to go home to your dog. I mean, they're just, <laughs> yeah. you know, so boring. Yeah. And they really don't tell you anything about the other person. You know, right. you want to find out, you know, what keeps them up at night? What are their simple pleasures? Yeah, and then you also point out that there are a lot of questions we ask or ways that we respond that are in fact covert kind of recommendations or judgments, right? Right. Like, why don't you see a therapist or why don't you divorce him? Yeah. Making judgments or giving people advice they don't actually yeah. want. Right? Yeah. Have you thought of a gluten-free diet? <laughs> <laughs> Those kinds of things, yeah. You know, I mean, if you're starting out a question with, wouldn't you agree or don't you think? You know, those are not really right. open and honest questions. Yeah, and as it turns out, even our closest relationships, and perhaps especially our closest relationships, were not listening adequately, right? This was another eye-opener for me. Yeah. Can we talk about the closeness communication bias? I found this fascinating. Well, I mean, you would think that you would listen the most closely to the people that you were closest to, you know, the people that you love, but in fact, the opposite is true. And that's because once you are really close to somebody, there's this unconscious tendency to think, I already know what you're going to say. Yep. You know, I already know. And so you, you shut down. I give the analogy of it's, it's like, you know, driving a road, the same route every day, like, you know, driving to work. And pretty soon you stop noticing the scenery. You stop noticing the signposts. Yeah. But the problem, of course, is that we're all changing every day. And if you, you're not listening to that person as they change a little bit every day over time, you know, you get to this point where, oh my gosh, I don't know you anymore. Or you don't know me. I remember there's a University of Chicago study that determined that spouses are no better than strangers right. at reading the meanings of phrases that might have multiple meanings, right? Like. Uh, What's the meaning of the phrase, you look different today? You know, another one was, it's hot in here, which could mean, you know, somebody's feeling sort of amorous, or it could mean it's really hot in here, or it could just mean, you know, it's, it's getting tense in here. It could be all of those things, depending on how you say it. 
And so, you know, a lot of times, you know, the spouses thought, you know, the wife or, you know, vice versa, the husband was getting amorous and they know it's really hot in here. You know, those <laughs> kinds of things. And it was also, it wasn't only spouses, it was people and their best friends where they thought the best friends would understand them better than strangers and not so at all. Are men worse listeners? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I, you know, I think it's very individual. It's like saying all men are taller than women. I mean, but that was really something that came through in my research is men, both men and women, perceive women as being better listeners. Mm -hmm. And so there's a big argument whether or not that's nature or nurture, where women are conditioned to be better listeners mm -hmm. or um, if it's actually something that's inborn. And so there are lots of arguments going both ways because they do have studies where you know, infant girls are just much more attuned mm. to the human voice and to facial expressions mm -hmm. than little boys. But, you know, again, it's, you know, I, I think it's very individual. I've known a lot of women who are horrible listeners mm. and a lot of men who are fantastic listeners. And I also think people can be better listeners in certain situations. So it is very individual. So I don't think you could come down and say that, you know, all men are better listeners and mm -hmm. all women are better listeners. As you point out at one point, you talk about sort of like our image of success is prowling the stage of the TED conference as a speaker. Like this right. is sort of like the apotheosis of success in our modern world. I think that impacts women as well as men. But I think often at dinner parties, you have this dynamic of like, you know, people competing to be performative, to get the most laughs. Now, sometimes that results in a certain amount of, you know, amusement, uh -huh. but it can also just be exhausting, right? All this kind of performance. Yeah, I call that conversational competitiveness. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty endemic. And, you know, I bring out the Algonquin Roundtable. You know, that was back, you know, many yes, decades yes, ago. Yes, 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 that was but fascinating. That, but that really, in the mm -hmm. popular imagination, that is, you know, amusing, scintillating conversation to mm -hmm. have this competition where everybody's trying to get in their quip, to get in their laugh, to score a point. But, you know, I have to say, when I talk to people, both men and women, you know, I had a woman the other day who has a... Um, Let's just say she has a storied romantic life. And she told me that, you know, the sexiest thing a man can do is listen to you. And I also quote someone in the book who says that he married his wife because she, yes. she stops a beat, is quiet for a moment after he stops talking, and he can tell she's thinking about what he said. So, you know, we may have these ideas of what we're supposed to do, but really, you know, listening is the thing that really makes you connect with another person and makes them want to be with you. Yeah. I love the story of Winston Churchill's mother, Lady Randolph Churchill, who ate dinner with two arch-rival British politicians, William Gladstone and Benjamin Disraeli. And she said, when I dined with Gladstone, I felt like he was the cleverest man in England. But when I dined with Disraeli, I felt that I was the cleverest woman. Yeah, I love that quote. You know, and which one did she prefer? Disraeli. She vastly preferred Disraeli. Not only did she prefer Disraeli, but Queen Victoria uh -huh. much preferred Disraeli. Exactly. Right? And, and people said it verged on unconstitutional to have the queen so in favor of, of one candidate. But it's an example of that we think that, oh, well, you want to be the clever person on the stage who's making everybody laugh and holding everybody's attention. And making an impression, exactly. But, you know, really, it's the person who really listened to them. By now, you're probably wondering, what does it take to be a better listener? Here's a hint. It involves indulging something we're usually told to suppress. 
Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Naomi Henderson is a professional listener. There have been a lot of cases where people have shared things with me and I am hard pressed to suppress my tears with either their courage or their story. She's not a therapist or a social worker or a reporter. Naomi Henderson runs consumer focus groups and she's unbelievably good at it. If they're gonna tell us how they feel, be nice if we knew something about them as people. In 1994, a major manufacturer of household cleaning products decides to add a new line, but they're not sure which way to go. Naomi's job is to uncover what it is that consumers really want. I said to people, if there were no paper towels, what would you use instead? That opened up a great conversation right at the beginning of the focus group, and we were meeting each other as women who do a lot of cleaning. She listens carefully as the focus group members describe their cleaning rituals. One woman says it makes her feel guilty to use paper towels just once and throw them away. So if they're not too used, just a little damp, say, she saves them and reuses them on the floor. She pushes them around with her feet to wipe up messes. Other women nod. That's what they do, too. Naomi relays this to her client, and it leads to an entire new category of cleaning product. Swiffer Sweeper cleans so completely, you'll never go back to your old room again. Today, Swiffer is a billion-dollar brand. I happened to be the midwife when Swiffer got born, and I had nothing to do with creating the concept of Swiffer. I just kept asking great questions about what else can be done with a paper towel. But traditional focus groups are giving way to less expensive surveys and algorithms. Can companies really deliver what people want without actually listening to them? Have we created a world where there may never be another Swiffer? Can we talk about Naomi Henderson, the Beyonce of focus group moderators? Oh, right, what a character. Uh-huh. She was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I, I met her at a conference for qualitative research professionals who are people who essentially do focus groups, among other things, but listening to people for a living, listening for corporations to find out what people think about yeah. their products and services. And like you said, I mean, she has first name status. I mean, she's like Beyonce, Cher, everybody just calls her Naomi. Nobody calls her Naomi Henderson. And, you know, she's been in the business for almost 50 years and listened cumulatively to 50,000 people. She's yeah. like an Olympic athlete of listening. And she was absolutely so astute at picking up on just subtle cues 
that might tell you, you know, somebody maybe had more to say or they were holding back or maybe they weren't being truthful. And she was just, you know, virtuosic in her ability to listen and really to make people comfortable with her because she was genuinely listening. It wasn't just a tactic. She really had this fundamental curiosity. What do you think about that? And she was also master of the great question. She always asked questions in a way that didn't rob people of their stories. And one of the best anecdotes, in fact, it's one that's in the book, is she was charged by a major grocery chain to find out what made people grocery shop late at night. Yeah. And she didn't ask the obvious questions that any of us would ask. Well, do you shop late at night because um, you didn't get around to it during the day? Instead, Naomi kind of posed her question in the form of an invitation and said, tell me about the last time you shopped late at night. And as a result, this woman who was sitting in the back just you know, really had not had much to say. And she raised her hand and said, well, I just smoked a joint. I was looking to have a menage a trois, me, Ben, and Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> but those are the kinds yeah. of insights that corporations, companies, this grocery store chain wants to know. At one point in the book, you describe a good conversation as like a dance. Mm -hmm. The more the two parties are in sync with each other, the better. I thought that was so nice. I was really struck by the research on how brain waves in an fMRI scanner literally couple when people are properly in sync or understanding each other. I think it was neuroscientist Yuri Hassan who did the study that showed that when people speak and listen, the better they understand each other, the more closely their brain waves sync up. I mean, they literally mirror each other. Yeah. And when friends watch the same YouTube video, their brain waves match up the closer the friends they are, the more closely they match up. Yeah, it just shows you the more you listen to someone, the more it influences not only that syncing up at the moment you're speaking with them, but also how you interpret subsequent information mm -hmm. because of that learning, that resonance that you had before. So the more you listen to someone like, you know, a close friend, a business partner, a family member, the more you two will be of like minds when you're presented with new information. So yeah, yeah. So this listening process, I mean, it really shows that it's not at all passive. I mean, that you're literally getting alignment with the way another human being thinks, processes, experience, and so on. And, you know, all these chemicals are released, you know, like the bonding chemicals, like, you know, oxytocin. So, you know, there's that relationship building. There was an attachment expert I interviewed and who I quoted in the book, and she calls those moments snatches of magic, you know, which is wonderfully poetic. And we've all felt that, you know, when you've talked to someone, you, you feel like a, you really like that person really got me or, you know, I we were totally in sync. But you, know, you look at the neuroscience, it's actually true. Yep. And when you think about it, you know, that feel-good feeling and also just that, that neural coupling, you know, that's how we survived as a species. That's how we cooperated so we could go hunt that woolly mammoth, so we could send someone to the moon. It's all that neural coupling brought about by listening. I like neural coupling. So neural coupling tends to precede coupling coupling. Right. <laughs> Presumably. Exactly. Is listening is good for romance. <laughs> yeah. Listen up, guys. Well, but, you know, and on the other side of it, you know, also professionally, you know, when, yeah. when people really sync up in terms of their professional lives, these partnerships, think of, you know, Steve Jobs and Wozniak. Or you think of any, you know, great partnerships, you know, in history, you know, whether it's Winston Churchill and FDR, it's, you know, it's that, 
that neural coupling mm-hmm. that comes from spending long, uninterrupted hours together mm-hmm. listening. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a perfect segue to the nuts and bolts of how we can become better listeners. Okay, I'm gonna assume by now that all of our listeners are sold on the idea that this is important for our relationships, for our happiness, and frankly, important for our communities. So when we think about just this pragmatic question of how we can go about becoming better listeners, it seems to me that maybe the place to start is with curiosity. You say that everyone is fascinating if you ask the right questions, but you have to be curious. You have to want to know the answer. And curiosity is what begets the question. So it is, it's cultivating that curiosity or maybe rediscovering the curiosity that you lost. Because, you know, little kids are curious. Everything's new. Mm. And so they'll ask a million questions trying to figure you out. And so, you know, it's just, it gets beat out of us. Well, and and it almost strikes me as coming up with the right sequence of questions as like a Rubik's Cube solving challenge, which is that like this person may be entirely uninteresting on the outside, or at least I may have that initial impression. Mm -hmm. But the onus is on me to figure out what it is that I can learn or discover. Well, when you're talking about giving tips about the nuts and bolts is just to really, you know, have that in your mind, what can I learn about this person? You know, go into the conversation with that, that I want to leave this conversation knowing something new, interesting about this person. And also, you know, how did that person feel about what we were talking about? If you can do those two things after a conversation, you're well on your way to being a better listener. And then, of course, the other amazing variable is that you actually make people more interesting when you listen to them attentively, right? This is a fascinating twist, right? I mean, that the same person, when listened to attentively, ends up speaking with greater detail and enthusiasm. Well, and they speak more logically. So if you are a non-judgmental, open listener, the other person will be a much more interesting conversationalist. It's fascinating. Now... For the parents out there, as a little bonus advice, okay, you pick up your kid from soccer practice and he says, that was horrible, I never want to go again. What do we tend to say and what should we say? Well, that really strikes a nerve in parents. You know, well, you can't quit. And also, you know, oh my God, what happened? You know, I'm going to call the coach. Or just trying to just sort of divert it, ignore it. Are you hungry? You know, you'll feel better after we eat. Mm-hmm. You know, all those kinds of things that, you know, divert, give advice, get, you know, highly emotional, yep. try to fix, all yep. those types that, of exactly things. That's exactly what I would do, by the way, the, the wrong thing. Yeah, well, yeah. well, I mean, there's no yeah. really right or wrong, but, you know, to really be listening, which yeah. is, you know, what we're talking about in the book, is to really find out, you know, what what does quitting mean for you? Have you ever felt this way before? Let the child really expand on what happened and how they feel. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, what could be frustrating them could have nothing to do with what happened on the soccer field. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It could be something else. And so to be able to make the space to allow someone, because kids are like everybody else. They just want to be heard. And they want you to make space for that. And also, you know, when you jump in to correct, advise, fix, the message that you're sending is, you know, you're not going to get this without me. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not mm-hmm. equipped to solve this on your own. And that's, you know, really disempowering. Yeah. Well, returning to the joy of listening, mm-hmm. I'd love to end on a beautiful passage from your book, my favorite sequence of sentences. I already identified my favorite phrase. This okay. is my, my favorite sequence of sentences that talks about some of the payoffs you've had from your many years of listening. You say, sometimes the disclosures 
were so profoundly personal, I was the only person who knew and may still be. Neither of us knew quite how we reached that moment, but it felt important, sacred, inviolate. It was a shared epiphany wrapped in a shared confidence that touched and changed us both. And that was, I think, your describing these wonderful kind of surprising communications that were a result in a professional journalistic setting, right, of just attentive listening. Well, you know, and I've had the same experiences just, you know, sitting on an airplane or, you know, walking around my neighborhood of having those types of conversations. And that's really why I wrote the book. You know, those snatches of magic, those are what make a life. That's who make you who you are. That's who shape, as you say, your inner voice. They are just who make you the human being that you are. And that's evolving every day by the people you listen to. And when you don't listen, you really limit who you can be. Thank you so much, Kate. I think the sum total of shared epiphanies, as you say, among our listeners today and readers more broadly will be larger because of this book. I hope so. Thank you so much. If you have thoughts about You're Not Listening or any of the books in our series, join the conversation with me, Kate Murphy, and other authors at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. You can sign up for the club and get a free copy of You're Not Listening with the promo code LISTEN. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast, promo code L-I-S-T-E-N. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and every major listening app, as well as Wondery.com. And don't forget to support our sponsors. They're the reason we can offer this podcast for free. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes and a link to the next Big Idea Club. A special thanks today to Kate Murphy. Her book, You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters, is available wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode of The Next Big Idea was written by Maeve McGoran. Sound designed by Jake Gorski. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Our series producers are Natalie Shisha and Michael Kovnat. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.